Recently, you may have heard of the problem with the water supply in Flint, Michigan, where children have been drinking uh, tainted water, right, from the tap in their own homes, water laced with lead. Uh, you would say to yourself, who would do that? Who would drink lead-laden water? Well, they had no idea. Their city had decided to try to save some money and had decided to change the source of the water supply. They used the river that flowed through their town. Uh, it's a town of manufacturing. Those plants had polluted and allowed uh, pollutants to seep into the water supply. And for years now, the kids have been damaging their brains by drinking leaded water. Here in Southern California, living in Porter Ranch. People innocently just breathe the air in their home, wondering why their kids had nosebleeds, why they were feeling nauseous, wondering what's wrong. Well, the gas company that had hidden gas down in old caverns underneath the hill that they lived on had never replaced the safety valve. And it leaked, and it had been leaking for months, and they didn't want to tell the people that it was dangerous. They said, your air is perfectly fine. No, it's not. It's making us sick. So what are you supposed to do? Just stop breathing the air? I think some of us don't realize that our relationship with God is slowly being poisoned because we tolerate too much sin in our lives. It's as if we think a little bit won't hurt us, and we can just go on with our relationship with the Lord as if nothing has happened. But how much lead can you drink before you have brain damage? Or how much noxious gas can you suck into your lungs before you're ill? And I would suggest that we as believers have to say, let's not be so soft in allowing ourselves to tolerate sin in our lives. Open, please, to John's first epistle. The first epistle of John will begin in chapter 1. John was living in Ephesus and was helping lead one of the largest churches in, uh, in the entire Christian network. There were a number of little churches in smaller towns in Central Asia Minor there, uh, modern-day Turkey, in which John was trying to get good teaching to, but unfortunately the teachers that they were listening to in their small little churches was full of polluted teaching. Uh, their teachers had been influenced by what grew later on to become Gnosticism, and they believed that the true person is his spirit that has been imprisoned in a body. And so they thought that deeds done in the body don't affect who they really are. And so they didn't take sin seriously. They didn't consider it a poison at all. In fact, uh, they lived how they wanted and claimed to be Christians. 
John tells his readers, folks, those people aren't Christians. In chapter 2, he calls them antichrists. He says, it's a good thing they left you. They left you because you really were not equally yoked with them. They weren't even true Christians. Today in our culture, you don't dare question whether a person is a Christian or not. The Pope tried that with Donald Trump, and that didn't work so well. The Pope backed down when Donald said, how dare you question my Christianity? Yet some reporter asked him, you ever felt like you needed forgiveness? He says, what have I ever had to ask forgiveness for? I've never asked forgiveness for anything. I'm afraid, folks, we need to be careful about breathing the air or drinking the water because our culture takes sin softly. It doesn't care much about it. In chapter 2, John speaks about the influence of the world. He tells us, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And I'm afraid that we as Christians have become too worldly and don't even know it. We might just think we're going about breathing the air and drinking the water and are not realizing that we're poisoning ourselves with the beliefs of the world instead of the truth of the Word of God. Look with me, please. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him, and as believers we say we do, and yet walk in darkness, in other words, live a life that we are seeking to hide from God, in which... God is not with us in that life. He says, we lie and do not practice the truth. John's writing this because that was the case with their teachers. Their teachers were claiming to have fellowship with God. But if you looked at their lifestyle, you should have never believed them or listened to anything they said. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, these Teachers believed that they were not controlled by a sin nature. They denied the effect of sin in their lives. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. Do you think we're capable of deceiving ourselves? Do you think we're capable of lying to ourselves? Do you think we grade ourselves easily and say, just a little bit of poison isn't really poisoning me? They didn't believe they'd committed a single sin. Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, no, not even once, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If you sat under that teaching on a regular basis, can you imagine how convoluted your thinking would be? How confused you would be as to what is moral? And what is right? I think I have a thousand friends on Facebook. Uh, many of them I can barely remember. A lot of them were students coming through our college. 
Uh, and when the Supreme Court made homosexual marriage the law of the land, a number of people on Facebook put a filter on top of their portrait uh, that showed equality even in marriage. One would think that none of my thousand friends would have done that, but you'd be surprised as I was toggling through my Facebook list and saw friend after friend after friend cheering the decision of the Supreme Court. And I was thinking, what's with us? Do we not know what God has said? I posted one line of scripture that day. Remember Lot's wife. And I left it at that just to see what my friends would think. I thought, well, that should prick them a little bit if they even remember who Lot's wife is and what happened to Lot's wife and where she was running from and what she did. She looked back at Sodom and Gomorrah as it was being destroyed. Destroyed for what? Destroyed for that sin among many other sins as well. And many of us don't remember or care to remember Lot's wife. There's good news, however, and that is God is at work in our lives as believers to equip us to be pleasing to Him. All we need to do is cooperate with Him. In fact, He has made it amazingly easy. It's not nearly as hard as we think. Sometimes we tell ourselves, well, I can't because it would be just too hard. Not true. When we trusted in Jesus Christ, He actually changed us and made it possible for us with the empowerment of His Spirit and with the new nature and a new spirit that He's placed within us to be able to please Him on a regular basis. Jumping ahead in the story, let's begin reading with 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, the passage that opens the section emphasizing that God is my Father and I am His child. 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. He's saying, Jesus will be returning soon. We want to be ready and not embarrassed to greet him. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. 
And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And here's my favorite verse of all, verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Talk about high expectations. Talk about a high bar that God expects of us. Did John just say he cannot sin because he's born of God? Amazing. Do you see why I'm concerned that we take sin not seriously enough and that we tolerate too much of the poison of sin in our lives and that we need to be careful how we're relating to God? God's answer is, I have made you my child. You have placed your trust in me. I have forgiven you. I have washed you clean. I have placed my Holy Spirit within you. I have enlivened your spirit and made it alive and make it, made it capable of communing with me. And I have changed you to the point that, did you notice when it says in verse 9, because his seed abides in him? The word is sperma. He's saying, I've placed my genetic code in you so that you can follow me. God's seed is in us. I have five kids, and when they get together, one of the fun things they do at the table, we're, we're spread in different parts of the country. Three of them are in the middle part of the country, and two of them are out here. But when we all get together, one of the fun things they like to do is start mimicking dad and the memories they had of dad and his gestures and the funny things he said, and they all giggle and think it's funny, and, and some of it actually is funny in their imitations. <clears throat> one of the things that bothers my wife is when I put my hands on my hips. She says, you're taking up too much space. Those, those wings are sticking out everywhere. She said, I can't even get around you. Put your arms down. The reason I put my hands on my hips is because it feels good. Actually, it's genetic. If you trace in my family history, for some reason, I don't know why, we daughters like to put our hands on our hips. If you've seen my brothers, they do the same thing. They put their hands on their hips. They, it, it feels comfortable to us, and hence kids make fun of me for my angel wings out here. Another funny thing I never even noticed about myself is after I've eaten a fine meal and, and we're sitting there at the table and just relaxing, having conversation, I take my hands and fold them and lay them down on the table in front of me. My wife says, do you know your dad did that? It never occurred to me. I wasn't trying to copy him. In fact, if I knew my dad did it, I wouldn't do it. Uh, <laughs> but I, I keep forgetting 
because it just comes naturally. There's something genetic that accidentally got passed on to me where I fold my hands and lay them on the table. I caught my daughter doing the same thing, and I said, honey, do you realize what you're doing? She says, what, what? And I go like, I got that from my father, you got that from me, you're doomed. <laughs> you're putting your hands folded on the table right there in front of you. It's a genetic code that's been passed on to you. You see, God equips us to be able to do what He's asked us to do. And He's actually changed us. And when He says, the one born of God cannot sin, He's saying, I don't want you to sin. Now, commentators, when they read this, they get all upset and confused because they say, like, that says too much. How in the world can he write, he cannot sin because he's born of God? So you watch the commentators as they try to interpret this passage, and they get all creative and everything. And some of them say, well, we need to narrow the definition of sin here. Christians can't commit notorious crimes. Commit all of the little stuff, but none of the big stuff. But I invite you to go into our prisons, and we've got some very fine Christians who are imprisoned today because they've committed notorious crimes. That's not even true. Or there's others who say, well, we're forgiven, aren't we? Uh, there's even bumper stickers that apologize for our bad driving by saying, well, I'm forgiven. And they say, well, what is considered sin in the life of the unbeliever is not so regarded in the life of a believer. Really? A double standard? You think God treats us that way where he says, oh, well, I'll hold unbelievers accountable for that. I won't hold you accountable for that. But well, why did he say in 1 John 1, 9 that it's necessary for us to confess our sins to him to receive family forgiveness. Why would he say that? Why would he want us to agree with him that what we have just done is sin? It's because he does treat it as sin. And why would he ask us not to sin at all? It's because he doesn't want us to sin at all. So others say, well, I think what he's talking about here is the difference between the old nature and the new nature. And so the old nature is still lured by sin, and the old nature keeps sinning. It's the new nature that doesn't sin. Really, that's the same lie that the false teachers were teaching in this passage, in which they were saying, yeah, it's my body that's sinning, but it isn't me. The real me is not sinning, it's just my body. No, he's not blaming the old nature and saying, you get off scot-free because the new nature doesn't sin. No, that can't be the situation. Some others have suggested he's just putting out there the ideal. He doesn't actually expect you to live up to that. What if you did that with all of Scripture and you just said, like, well, he's talking about the ideal. He doesn't really mean it. What if I said to my students... It'd be nice if you studied, but I know you won't, so just come to the exam anyway, and I'll accept whatever you do. No! I want to motivate them to study. I want them to study hard. I want them to know what I've been teaching them, and so I will hold them accountable for how they perform on the exam. Some have said, well, 
Perhaps he's just saying to the degree to which one lives in Christ, to that degree he will be sinless. Is that what he said? Or did he just straight out say the one born of God cannot sin? So some people say, well, a lot of the sins I commit were just accidents. I didn't really actually mean to do so. Uh, I, I lost my temper. I didn't mean to lose my temper. I lashed out because I'd lost my temper. And so they would say, well, the Christian can't commit willful sin or deliberate sin. What he's talking about here is just the times you ensnared yourself. But James actually tells us that we build and bait our own traps. We ensnare ourselves, and all of that is sin. No, that can't be the answer. You know what the answer actually is? Watch how he describes himself through this entire passage. He starts with saying, go back to chapter 3, verse 1, he says, I bet you really don't appreciate how important it is that I have made you a child of God. The world doesn't get it, but you should. And then he says it even gets better in verse 2. Not only have I made you a child of God, but I'll actually completely perfect you taking away every taint of sin when Christ comes and takes you to be with you forever. And then he says, as a result of this hope of having all sin removed from you eventually, I hope you're planning to be as ready as possible when he returns. You don't want to shrink away from him in shame, according to the previous chapter. And in verse 3, he says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. So he's actually calling us towards greater purity. He's saying, if I know that when Christ comes to take me to be with him forever, he'll remove all taint of sin from me. He'll resurrect my body and give me a permanent, incorruptible body and make me holy and confirm me in holiness. Then I want to be as ready as possible. What bride waits to the last minute to plan her wedding? I bet you most of you eligible young ladies have already picked out your maid of honor, the colors of your wedding, uh, maybe of a number of your bridesmaids. You think about this way in advance. You're planning. And the same thing with us for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are ready and we are planning and we're purifying ourselves and we're seeking to make sure we are as ready as possible. And then in verse 4, he says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Now, where did that word practice come from? In fact, maybe in your translation, it doesn't say practice. In the ESV, it says keeps on. And if you have the verb to do, that would be the most literal rendering of this because he puts the verb to do in there and writes in the present tense. The one who does sin, present tense, also does lawlessness, present tense. Why is he writing that way? Because he's trying to stress that the Christian does not habitually, persistently sin. Christian only sins occasionally. 
And when he does sin, he's overwhelmed with grief and repentance. He's saying obedience is the ruling principle of his life. Now, I'm not making this stuff up. I got this straight out of 1 John. Let me explain. Do you remember when he just said, if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us? But he did tell us in 1 John 1, 9, we need to confess our sins to him. Look back at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. In other words, what did he mean by chapter 1 when he said, if we say we have no sin? In other words, you better admit you really have sin and you better confess your sins. He's saying, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is what he's saying throughout the entire book. He doesn't want us to sin at all. But if we sin occasionally, we better take it very seriously. We better admit that we've sinned and confess it to God and ask for his forgiveness because he, Jesus Christ, is our advocate, like an attorney who represents us. And to the Father says, my blood covered that sin. And though the devil is the accuser and seeks to harm us by accusing us before the Father, the Son pleads our case before the Father. He is the propitiation for our sins. He has satisfied God's wrath towards our sins. So why is John writing the way he's writing in chapter 3? Because he says, I want you to sin as little as possible. In fact, I want it to characterize your life. I want your life to be identified as a person who does not sin. Now look at your teachers. You've been listening to teachers who don't take sin seriously and sin all the time. Why, they're worldly. Why, they're antichrist and you didn't even recognize them? Horrors! Do you not know, have you not appreciated that God is your Father and He's adopted you as His child and He's placed His seed in you so that you won't continue to sin? So, in the context, as He's describing this, and with the grammar and the way in which he's using it, the verb to do plus the present tense, you find some of the translations seeking to help us understand by interpreting it, such as the New American Standard that I'm reading, translating the verb to do as practices, and the ESV translating it keeps on sinning. He says in verse 4, the one who keeps on sinning or the one who practices sin continuously is breaking God's law. God has said no. That was chapter 3, verse 4. Or look at chapter 3, verse 5. You know he appeared in order to take away sins. So he certainly wouldn't tolerate sin in your life, would he? Because he died to pay for those sins. You wouldn't want to do more of them, would you? In Him, there's no sin. If you want to have fellowship with Him, you should come to Him clothed in His righteousness. Verse 6, 
No one who abides, and John uses this term to say lives in close personal union with. You could go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 15, and hear him at length speaking about what it means to abide in Christ. Uh, the one who lives in close personal communion with Christ and receives nourishment and strength and empowerment from Him, no one who abides in Him sins. And he's not just talking about while you are abiding Him in a momentarily, then momentarily you won't sin. He's actually speaking as a way of life, as the dominant characteristic of your life. You will not continue to persist in sin. He says, the one who abides in Him no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. And hence, you shouldn't have been listening to this false teaching coming from these antichrists who have confused you regarding sin. That's why he says in verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. You have been being deceived. The one who practices righteousness, it's the verb to do, the one who does righteous present tense, stressing continuous action, is righteous, meaning God has changed him, and God has made him a righteous person who follows after Christ and seeks to please him, just as he is righteous. Most of us say, you know, this is really tough. I, I don't think I can tell who's a believer and who's not a believer. I don't think I could look at your life and see the pattern of your life and be sure who's in and who's out and who has a relationship with God or not. And consequently, we grade ourselves so softly that we tolerate too much sin in our lives. John says, it's not rocket science, folks. Listen to him in verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil's sin from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. He's saying a person whose life is characterized by sin doesn't know God. It's that easy. It's not hard to tell. The person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, the person who longs to please God, the person who is grieved when he sins and immediately turns to God and calls out for his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness, and according to 1 John 1, 9, confesses his sin, that's a believer, but the one who just keeps on sinning, thinking that he's doing so with impunity, is actually still a child of the devil. Why? Verse 9 again, our key verse. Because no one who is born of God, meaning generated from God, generated including the concept of his genes within us. And he's speaking quite specifically here in the sense that he says, I've changed you. You're not the same person anymore. You're a transformed person. You're a person who now loves me and loves to please me. No one who's born of God practices or keeps on sinning because his seed abides in him. And he cannot, let's say, go on sinning because he's born of God. You might say, well, 
That's really hard to see in a person's life. I can't see in a person's heart. I can't really tell uh, what a person is thinking. But you can see a person's actions. And John is more pragmatic than most teachers that we listen to. And he says, all right, you're having trouble figuring this out as far as a person's heart or a person's intimate, personal relationship with the Lord. How about you just look at his actions? And again, folks, he says, it's not that hard. Let me give you a test. Verse 10, 1 John 3.10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. If we want to see clearly what a Christian looks like, if we want to know what's on the test, if we're saying, can you give me a hint ahead of time as to how will be graded, he straight out says, Christians love their brothers. And that's where we should get all the more nervous, because we'd say to ourselves, well, like, wow, that's that's kind of a high standard, isn't it? Uh, To dwell above with saints I love, oh, that'll be glory, but to dwell below with saints I know... That's another story. A lot of the people I know aren't very lovely people and aren't actually very enjoyable people. You want me to love them? You see what we do in our minds? We start trying to make excuses for ourselves. And we say like, well, he's not very attractive to love. And we have to say to ourselves, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Was I attractive? Or was I unattractive. He set his love upon me, and he drew me to himself, and he saved me, and he's asking me, will you love your brother? And we say to ourselves, well, I don't know what love looks like. I I don't know what I would do. What do you want me to do? Again, listen to how practical he goes. He goes like, it's not rocket science, folks. I'll help you with this. I'll show you what love looks like. Verse 11, this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He says, this isn't new stuff. You've been taught this from the very beginning. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And God saw through their offerings and he appreciated Abel's sacrifice and did not appreciate Cain's sacrifice, and Cain hated his brother for it and ended up killing him. Well, there's a pretty clear-cut demarcation as to what it means to love or to hate your brother. If you murder the guy, you don't love him. And so you say, well, okay, that, that helps, all right, I'm not like Cain, but what are you asking me to do? Verse 16, we know love by this that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Wow. 
I'm supposed to put the other person's needs above my own. I might be willing to serve the person a little bit. Do I really want to give my life for that person? One of the conferences that we had at the college, uh, we had a number of uh, outside agencies coming in to uh, give opportunities for the students to serve, and one was, uh, a number of camps came. One particular camp director came who looked very pale. Uh, he looked ill. He, he moved about as if he was fragile, and I talked to some of his friends who were part uh, of his camp, and I said, is he okay? Should he be here? And they said, oh, he just donated his kidney. And I said, really? One of his family members needed a kidney? And they said, oh, it wasn't a family member. It was a new person in our church. A new person came. Uh, his kidneys uh, were terrible. He needed a kidney transplant. And uh, our brother here was tested. He was a match, and he donated a kidney. And I said, he donated a kidney to a new person in his church? And they said, yes. And so I started going through the list people I know, and I started evaluating them whether I would donate a kidney to them <laughs> or whether I wouldn't. I started with my wife, and I said, yes, I'll donate a kidney. I started then with my kids and said, yes, I donated my kidney. I've got two of them. And then once I got outside of my immediate family, it slowed down very rapidly. And I realized I'm selfish, and I have to grow in my ability to be willing to lay down my life for my brothers. But that is how he's going to grade us. That is what he's asking us to do. And we have a lot of growth to do to where we get to the point that we're going to pass this test, that I would be willing to lay down my life for my brother. Now, unless we get totally scared and we say, like, I don't know. I don't know. Can you give me an easier test? He drops it down to the kindergarten level in the next verse. Okay, so you're not in college. You have to go back to kindergarten, and you need to work your way on up. All right, here's the kindergarten test, verse 17. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how? Does the love of God abide in him? So we can stop talking about for the moment laying my life down for my brother or even giving a kidney. What if he has a need for some tools that you have in your garage? And he comes asking and you close your heart against him and say, like, I'm not going to trust you with my tools. I had a friend that asked me for my typewriter. It's like a keyboard that has paper that comes out the back and... and <laughs> When, when you touch the keys, it actually makes an immediate imprint on the paper. I, I was studying, I had a really nice uh, typewriter. It uh, was electric, you could change the color of the, of the ribbon and, and uh, make different colors and everything. He asked to borrow my typewriter. And I started to close my heart against him. I could feel my heart getting several sizes smaller as I was trying to think of some excuse to give him as to why I wasn't going to loan him my typewriter. You're like, what if he hit two keys at the same time? I couldn't think of any reason I couldn't loan it to him, so I did. He brought it back after the weekend, and he says, here, what, this is what I typed on it. He was a professional evangelist. I used to go out with him. We'd, we'd stand on uh, the pier at Huntington Beach, for example, and, and witness to people. He, he did chalk art and, and did street evangelism. I went out with him many times. 
he had typed a prayer letter to his supporters on my typewriter. And I thought, I nearly stood in the way of making it easy for him to send out a prayer letter. Folks, our hearts need to grow to become as generous with others as God has been with us and to grow to the point where we want to love our brothers as God has loved us. Let's be careful about who we listen to and what kind of teaching we're receiving. Let's make sure we're receiving biblical teaching. Let's be Bereans who search the Scripture to see that it's true. But if God tells us that He doesn't want us sinning habitually, He wants us to persistently obey Him, let's do so. And let's do so by loving our brothers as He has commanded us. Oh, Father, prick our hearts with the truth and enlarge our hearts with Your love and empower us to love as you have loved us. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.